Hello, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Horizon Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We want to help people connect with God and connect with each other. If you'd like to know more about us, you can go to our website at horizonconnect.org. Enjoy. God, we truly are grateful to you that you have chosen to show up um, among us. I thank God that you show up in a special way when we're together, but God, I also am grateful that, that you are with all of us together somehow, those watching at home, those who are watching later, those of us here. God, I thank you for your presence. God, I know that we arrive here sometimes with a lot of anxieties and a lot of worries. We have issues going on in our lives with kids, with parents, with friends. Um, some of us are struggling at work. Some of us are struggling with health issues. Some of us are struggling with finances. Some of us, God, are still, still struggling with leftover fear and anxiety from, from COVID. And God, we're struggling as a country with divisiveness. And so, God, we bring all of that along with us. It'd be nice if we could just kind of keep some compartments with... Uh, you know, some shells where we could put things when we want to be done with them, but it's not the way it works. We, um, it, it just all trails along wherever we go. So God, I want to pray for us this morning that as we uh, are, are here in your presence, I pray God that we be assured and reassured that you really do know what we're dealing with. You know better than we know. So, God, help us to be confident that you know. God, I also want to pray that you'd help us to be confident that you're at work and you're active. We may not even know what you're doing, but I know, God, that you are doing things to help us deal with all that we carry. And I know, God, that one of the things you do is to help us interact with your word and truth. I know, God, that every time that we pay attention to your word, I know that, and and I trust that you're somehow speaking to us, and you're doing that to every one of us individually. You help us to hear what we need to hear and to understand what we need to understand. God, you're doing the same thing for our kids downstairs. You'll do the same thing this afternoon for our youth group members. So thank you, God, for that. I also want to pray for those of us who are teachers, the kids' teachers downstairs, for Andy as he's prepared a lesson, and for myself as we teach our burden is for the people to whom we're teaching, as well as this burden that we have for you and for your word. We want to be truthful and accurate. So I pray, God, that every week as we prepare, you'll help us to be very faithful in our preparation. I also want to pray for us right now, God. I pray that if in any way, what I say is not accurate, or if a teacher downstairs, or if Andy, if we say something, God, that isn't completely in line with your word, I pray, God, that you'll guard us from being influenced the wrong way. God, everything that's true, I pray that you'll take it and invade the way we think, the way we talk, the way we live our lives, so that we'll be more and more in the process of being transformed into the people you want us to be. Thank you, God, for the promise, this extraordinary promise that you're changing us. Thank you, God, for how you do that and how you will do that today. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
So we, um, you know, I know it's going to be a whole lot of years. Some way down the years, I've talked to this with several people, uh, talked about this with a couple of people. Somewhere many, many years down the road, people are going to have a whole lot of fun reading about how uh, COVID has impacted our world. Um, I wish that we could know right now. I wish we could be able to know right now everything about how COVID's changed our world. Um, but we can't know right now. And some way down the road, some years down the road, we're going to be able to read, people are going to be able to read um, about how masks and how social distancing and how lockdowns have impacted our kids and our relationships and our economy and our institutions and our neighborhoods. And, and parts of our lives have been impacted that we're not even aware of yet, that we won't know for, for a long time down the road, whether it's temporary or it's, or, or it's permanent. But there are some things, there are some things that we know right now, some things we know right now about how COVID has impacted our world. Therapists, for example, therapists I've talked to have told me they're busier than ever. Um, therapists are busier than ever because of COVID. I know that businesses can't get employees. I know that nonprofits can't get volunteers. I know that swimming pools and RVs and backyard decks are, are multiplying faster than a group of horny rabbits. It's just extraordinary how fast this stuff, uh, this stuff is happening. And in the church world, in the world of church, something we know right now is um, what is called the great reshuffling is underway. That's what researchers are calling it, according to a report I just read. The great reshuffling is underway. There is a shocking number of people, more than we've ever seen, at least in the American church, more than we've ever seen, a shocking number of people are changing churches. In fact, what's, what's so unusual about this is that people who went to family churches all of their lives are suddenly saying sayonara and looking for other churches. And the biggest reason for this great reshuffling has to do with how a particular church uh, dealt with COVID. In some cases, People are leaving because they're saying their church's reaction was too strong to COVID. And in other cases, people are leaving because they're saying um, it, it hasn't been strong enough. And so lots of people, shockingly, people who, you know, they grew up in this church, their grandparents went to this church, shockingly, tons and tons of people got their pumpkins frosted over COVID and the great reshuffling is underway. And every single pastor and every single church leader will tell you, yep, we've been through it. We've seen it. We've seen it right here. People are, uh, people are going elsewhere to churches. I don't know, did you, hear, did you hear, did you catch the story recently about the shipwrecked guy who had survived for years on a desert island alone and was recently rescued? His rescuers, when, when he was finally found, his rescuers were shocked at how he had survived. He'd managed to build several bamboo buildings on this island. And his rescuers, when they rescued him, they said, before we get you off the island, you mind giving us a tour and just showing what you built? It's remarkable. Showed them his, he, he showed them his treehouse. He showed them this little house he had for food storage. He showed them his outhouse. And then there was this one building with a bamboo cross. And the rescuers had a very solemn moment when he said to them, I even built myself a church. 
And then as they were leaving, the rescuers noticed one other building that he hadn't told them about. And they said, well, what's that one? And he said, well, that's where I used to go to church. (laughs) Well, it's on. The great reshuffling is on. And the problem isn't so much that people are changing churches. I mean, the reality is with the exception of a group of young people who've grown up here and a handful of people who never went anywhere before coming to Christ and starting at Horizon Church, every single person here, myself included, used to go somewhere else. The problem isn't the reshuffling. The problem is the dividedness that causes it. We have not learned how to disagree and still get along. And so we must. We must. Unity, getting alongness, I think is probably the most ignored virtue of the church. Unity is one of the things that Jesus prayed for when he prayed for us, and he did pray for us. And Jesus, when he prayed for us, among a small handful of things he specifically prayed for for you and I, he actually prayed that we would be one. It's one of the most ignored virtues of the church. So how do we actually do this? How do we hang in there together when the world is doing everything it can to pull us apart? How do we disagree and still get along? Now, here's the thing. We're actually lucky because every single New Testament church had strong disagreements. Every single one. And so every single letter in the Bible written to a church addresses this issue of getting along when we're being pulled apart. I want to read to you just a couple verses, four verses from one of those letters written by Paul to a group of people he loved deeply in a city called Philippi. This is from Paul's letter to the Philippians. I'm going to read it, and if you're following along in your Bibles, just kind of keep your Bible open so you can see what we're going to be talking about. Um, as we work our way through it. This is what Paul wrote, chapter 2, first four verses. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of yourselves as, thinking of others as better than yourselves. And don't look out for your own interests only, but take an interest in others too. I'm going to read the next sentence, even though it's up there, because we're going to talk about this. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And then Paul goes on to talk about that attitude. So here's the deal. You and I, 
most of us anyway, almost everybody in this room, we are people of faith. And that means we believe, obviously, we believe that God is alive and well, and we believe that there are things that God can do that we cannot do. And sometimes when we're talking about these things that God can do that we can't, sometimes we call these things supernatural things, things that God does that human beings can't do. We call them supernatural. And what that means simply is that God has this ability to exceed what we can do naturally. They're supernatural. They're other than natural. And that's what we mean. And this is important. This is so important for us because naturally, naturally on our own, We disagree. No two of us are alike. Frankly, sometimes I disagree with myself, even. That's the way we are as human beings. So if we're going to overcome this tendency that is there and is present in all of us, if we're going to overcome this natural tendency to disagree, It is going to have to be by supernatural means. It cannot be done by ourselves. And thank God, this is where we're going to start. The first couple sentences of what Paul is saying are entirely supernatural. It can't be done by you and I. Now, I need to show you something that has to do with grammar. And if you're looking at your Bibles, or if you can remember what we read, many of our Bibles will start out, regardless of the translation, they will start out reading very much like my Bible started out reading with you. It will read as if the first four sentences are questions. If you got your Bible open, maybe you can see it in your Bible. In our Bible, it looked like this. This is the way chapter 2, the first sentence started with four four questions. This is what it looked like. Is there any encouragement from Christ, etc., etc.? Now, what you need to know is these first four questions in all of our Bibles, regardless of how they're stated, these four, four, four questions are what we would call rhetorical questions that may not be obvious to you. In fact, it may seem, in my Bible especially, it may seem to you that Paul is actually asking a legitimate question. And maybe Paul is saying, maybe it's there, encouragement from belonging to Christ, maybe it's there, and maybe it isn't. That's the way it reads, that Paul isn't necessarily sure. You need to know, however, that in the language that Paul is writing, in the language of ancient Greek, There's a two-letter word that starts every one of these four sentences, and it's a two-letter word that is almost exactly like our two-letter word, if. Now, most times when we use the word if in a sentence, it's a question. We might say, for example, well, if 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 it doesn't rain, you can play outside. And that's kind of a conditional thing. It might rain, it might not. But if it doesn't rain, you can play outside. Everybody with me on that? Makes sense so far. That's usually the way we use the word if. Even in English, and especially in Greek, however, that that two-letter word can sometimes be emphasized to use to actually emphasize that a thing is true. In other words, it's not saying, well, it's conditional. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It's actually used to emphasize that a thing is true. So, for example, if you have a five-year-old and your five-year-old just loves McDonald's, and is, every time you say we're going out to eat tonight, your five-year-old says, let's go to McDonald's, and, and you're usually saying no, because why would anyone want to go to McDonald's? But, 
if that's the way it functions, most of the time you say we're going out to eat, your five-year-old says, let's go to McDonald's, you say no. But on your five-year-old's birthday, you've arranged it so that you've said to him or her, you get to pick on your birthday where you want to eat. And your birthday boy says, really? I do? We can go to McDonald's? You respond by saying, remember, if it's your birthday, you get to choose. Do you see how the word if is used there? It emphasizes the truth of the birthday choice. You with me? It's not conditional. You're not saying, well, if it's your birthday, maybe you choose, maybe you don't. It's emphasizing the truth of his birthdayness. That's the way the word if is used in these sentences. It's not conditional. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't it. It's emphasizing the truth of each one. That's how these four sentences start with that little word. And Paul is emphasizing that each of these four truths supernaturally already exist in the church. All of us, Paul, or Paul is saying, all of us actually do belong to Christ together. All of us do. There is a bond in Jesus Christ that all of us share, and it isn't conditional. It's like a family. In some ways, it is a family, in fact. Every single person who is a follower of Jesus Christ, every single one of us, we all supernaturally belong together in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, that exists in the church, whether you know it or not. Not maybe it exists, but it exists. We belong together. Secondly, Paul is saying all of us both give and we need comfort from love. No exceptions. And it supernaturally exists. Maybe it's not. Maybe it does. Thirdly, all of us are filled with the same spirit. Right now, at this moment, right now, here all around the world, Christians who are meeting together, Democrats, Republicans, cat lovers, beach lovers, Yankees fans, um, the person that goes to your church that you wish you wouldn't, it doesn't matter, Paul says, because all of us are filled with the same spirit, supernaturally, not maybe, but it's true right now, at this moment, all of us are. And fourthly, all of us are capable of giving affection and compassion to each other. And Paul's saying, not maybe these things exist in the church, but they do. And all four of these things are supernaturally true. It must be supernatural, otherwise these things would not be true of us. Because on our own, who of you is going to do all four of these things on our own? We're not capable of it. Naturally, we're going to disagree. Naturally, I am going to drift into my particular tribe. And naturally, we're going to be insiders and outsiders. Naturally, I'm going to give and receive love only from people that I like, that I want to be with. Naturally, I am without the Spirit of God. Naturally, I'm empowered by myself and my own abilities, not empowered by God. And on my own, my own abilities are going to lead me to pride and selfishness and greed, etc., etc. Naturally, I'm self-protective. Naturally, I'm going to give affection, I'm going to give compassion, only when I'm giving it to somebody that I know they're going to give it back to me. On our own, we're not capable of these things. We can't do it, but supernaturally, God empowers the church. He empowers all of us so that there is a bond that we share in Jesus Christ, 
supernaturally he empowers us so that we can give and receive the comfort of love and supernaturally he empowers us so all of us are filled with the spirit of God and supernaturally he empowers us so that we are capable of giving and receiving affection. And only God can do that and you may think otherwise but on our own we can't do those things. Only through God is this, is this possible. So you need to know that when we start talking about how do we get along when we disagree, you need to know that Paul says, look, it's a supernatural thing, and that's where it starts. And I don't know about you, but that's good news. Because I'm not being asked to do something that I can't do on my own. Paul is telling us God's going to do it. And that's where we start. If we're going to disagree and still get along, you have to know that what God is saying, look, it's supernatural. God does something that you can't do. That's where we start. Now, since God is doing this, it is possible for us to do something that only God can do. And in verse 2, Paul says what God can do that you can't on your own is, quote, be of the same mind. That's the emphasis in verse 2. We can agree wholeheartedly with each other. We can love each other. We can work together because, according to Paul, we are of the same mind. Now, this is so important what I'm about to say. The kind of agreeing that Paul is talking about when he says we can agree wholeheartedly, this does not mean that we are expected to agree with each other about everything. Paul's not saying make sure that you guys get on the same page with everything. There's a great word in that sentence. <clears throat> I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time with this, but there's a great word in that sentence, and it's the word... Literally, it's a word that means one-souled. He's saying of us that God makes you one-souled. It's the word that's in there. It's, it's simpsychos. And if you're looking at that word, uh, you can actually see some English words, you know, in, in, the, in those words. But that word, simpsychos, to be one-souled, what it means is that what God does is God does something that pulls us together even when it feels like everything in the world is pulling us apart. Let me give you an example. This is like a marriage. Have you ever been to a wedding ceremony? I know you all have. And you've heard the phrase during this ceremony, the two shall become one. How many of you have heard that phrase? Okay. That's a phrase we hear in a wedding ceremony, the two shall become one. Long, long ago, I heard a pastor, a wise old pastor say, the problem starts when they try to decide which one, right? Because no two people are going to agree on everything, right? Too cold, too hot. Sleep with the window open, sleep with the windows closed. Spend or save. Car or truck, beach or mountains, organized or disorganized. What is the discipline of the kids going to look like? Yada, 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 yada. 
the two becoming one does not erase those differences. It is not saying, well, the two are one and magically you're now going to agree with each other. It's never going to happen. What it means in a marriage is that you now have a more compelling reason to stick together. You now have something bringing you together that is more important than too cold, too hot, beach or mountains. You have something bringing you together that is stronger than our differences. Does that make sense? That's what two becoming one means. Not that the differences are erased, but that you have something more compelling that pulls you together. That's what this word one-souled means. It does not mean that in a church we're going to start agreeing on everything. In fact, the reality is we should not even try to agree on everything. There's a whole lot of good things that result from our differences. The idea that we would agree on everything actually would short-circuit this marvelous idea of a body that Christ has put together in the church. So we should not even try to agree on everything. And that's not what Paul is saying, agree on everything. But here's the thing that's happening in the American church right now. This great reshuffling is caused, because in the American church anyway, we have divided over ideology. Ideology, for many of us, has become more important than theology. Our ideology has become more important than theology. Ideology, definition of ideology is a set of beliefs or opinions of a person or a group. Capitalism is an ideology. Communism. Socialism, republicanism, democratism, and on and on and on and on. They're all ideologies. And you will notice in that definition of ideologies, the word truth is nowhere to be found. Do not miss that. These are beliefs and opinions, not truth. Now, I know you think your ideology is the truth. So do I. We obviously believe our particular ideology is right. Of course we do. If we didn't, we wouldn't believe it. I subscribe to certain ideologies, and of course I think I'm right. We all do. But here's the thing, and this is what is so tragic right now in our country. There are whole industries with a whole lot of wealth and power that work, us, work very, very, very hard to keep us divided by ideology. Right now, many, many of us in this room and in the American church are right now being discipled by our favorite news, by social media, by whatever radio or podcasts or blogs we listen to and watch. In other words, this is so important for us, we are being discipled by the voices of our ideology. To be discipled simply means that your mind is being shaped. 
Every single one of us, without exception, every single one of us is always being discipled by something. And we either choose who we will disciple us or it happens by default. And all you have to do is look around the world to know that whole bunches of people are being discipled by the voices of ideology. And in the church, ideology has now become more important than theology. So Paul says in the church, Paul says, look, supernaturally, we are of one mind. We work together with one mind, he said. And this is so important. Because just two sentences after Paul said this, I actually read verse 5. Two sentences after Paul said, uh, we are of one mind. Paul actually says, well, which mind? He says in verse 5, my Bible read this way. You all have to have the same attitude of Jesus Christ. But you need to know that what Paul wrote literally is, you have to have the mind of Christ the mind of Christ. So he said in verse 2, we all work together with, which, with one mind, and then two sentences later, he tells you what mind, the mind of Christ. Here's the deal. Jesus is more important than our ideology. He just is. Jesus is more important than our ideology. The agenda of Jesus Christ is more important than the agenda of our ideology. It just is. Think about this. Every one of us who's been around church for any length of time, we know what it is that got Jesus in trouble. In fact, we know what got Jesus crucified. We know what it was. He hung around with the wrong people, right? The religious leaders did not like who Jesus hung around with. They said that to him. You're a man of God, but you're always hanging around with sinners. You're eating with them. And it was true. That's who he was always hanging around with all the time. Do you think Jesus agreed with them? Of course not. They were tax collectors, guys like Zacchaeus. The tax collector is a person who was selling out the Jews to the Romans. Do you think Jesus agreed with the tax collectors? He didn't agree with them. But he loved them. Theology has to be more important than ideology. So here's what this means. Nobody is asking you to agree on everything. We never will. We're never going to agree on our ideology. We shouldn't. I never want to go to a church of all Democrats or all Republicans. What a shallow, superficial place that would be. But if there is something that is keeping you from unity, if your ideology is keeping you from unity, if your ideology says, well, I'm not going there on a Sunday until... If your ideology is keeping you from unity, turn it off. Stop it today. That's what Jesus would tell you, I'm certain. Because here's the deal, the world wants your eyeballs. The world wants you to keep scrolling. 
world wants you to keep watching. And anger is a fantastic motivator. Anger will keep you scrolling. Anger will keep you watching. And anger will keep you listening. And my goodness, I got to tell you, I have witnessed a lot of anger in churches the last year or so. So if something has or if something is pulling you away from unity, stop it and turn it off. And on the flip side, be disciples of Jesus. Be directed by the mind of Jesus. Love what Jesus loves. And let me tell you how to do this. Verses 3 and 4 tell us how to do this. We do this by serving, serving other people, putting the interests of others first. How many of you have ever heard of the golden rule? No-brainer, pretty much, right? Most of us have heard of the golden rule. You could probably treat it, you could quote it. Golden rule says, treat other people the way you wanted to be treated, which is absolutely brilliant, as in it? Treat other people the way you wanted to be treated. Jesus said it, Confucius said it, tons of people said it. However, Don and I were recently having a really significant discussion about the golden rule, and Donna and I realized that what it really means to obey the golden rule isn't necessarily treating other people the way I want to be treated. What it means is to treat the other person the way he or she wants to be treated. And there's a difference. Uh, we were in Maine for a couple days, and it was absolutely wonderful. On the last night in Maine, we went out for the traditional lobster meal at a, at a lobster pound, which basically means you order a real expensive meal and you sit outside at picnic tables. And um, I have never, um, I don't know about you, but I've never eaten a whole lobster. So they put, these whole, they put these whole lobsters down in the styrofoam little box, and Don and I looked at each other, and we both realized, I have no idea how to eat this thing. So I actually pulled up YouTube, and we did. And Don and I YouTube how to eat a whole lobster. But here's the deal. If you've never eaten a whole lobster, I'm going to warn you, um, it's like a wrestling match with a dead thing that is extraordinarily hot because it just came out of boiling water. You know, you're cracking this thing open and honestly, it's spraying stuff all over your face. Um, so we're eating this, eating this, and I said to Donna, Donna, have you, have you ever heard of this thing called a lobster roll? Um, and she had, and there's this truck that shows up. So the next day, after the wrestling match, the next day was the last day there, we were actually saying goodbye, and before we said goodbye, we spent the morning, you know, kind of sitting on the beach on the rocks, and I said, Donna, like, let's split a lobster roll. And she said, no, nah, I'm really not hungry. She wasn't feeling great. She said, but I'm not hungry, but you can get one. So I'm thinking, as any husband would, I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to order one, but I know she's going to take a bite or two, right? You know that's going to happen. She's going to take a bite or two. So, and that's the way you treat somebody else. You know, treating her like I want to be treated. I would expect her to order one thinking, well, he's going to take a bite or two. So on the way out of town, we stopped. Uh, Mr. Generous, you know, knowing that she was going to take, I picked up a bunch of napkins. I picked up an extra plate, picked up an extra fork. And I'm ordering my lobster roll. And the lady said, do you want a warm one with butter or a cold one with mayo? I didn't know there was a choice, but there's a choice. Warm one better. Now, I ordered cold with mayo. And the moment I turned around and looked at Donna sitting at the table, I remembered, Donna hates mayo. 
What a dweeb I am. You see the difference in the golden rule? This is what Jesus was teaching. The golden rule is not exactly treat other people the way you want to be treated. The golden rule is treat other people the way they want to be treated. And that means we need to know. How does the other person want to be treated? In the church world, there's this concept, and it's marvelous. There's this concept called the five love languages. Brilliant. How many have ever heard of the five love languages? It's brilliant. Um, the concept is, and psychologists have worked this out, they say that we give and receive love basically in five different ways. Just go over these real quickly. One is words of affirmation, which means it's people who, you know, you want to hear, good job, I love you, you look great in that uh, hunting outfit, etc. those kind of things, words of affirmation. Um, the second form of uh, love language is physical touch. Lots of hugs, lots of holding hands, sitting shoulder to shoulder, lots of love making, etc. physical touch. The third form is quality time. Spending Friday nights together, picnics. Quality time doesn't mean also, doesn't mean just being together. Quality is important. So when you're together, your eyes are on the other person, not on your phone. Quality time is one. The fourth one is personal gifts. Um, hey, while I was away, I thought of you and I picked up this little for you. Whatever it is, personal gift. The fifth one is acts of service. Let me do the dishes for you, honey. How about I, how about I um, dig out a space for a garden out back because I, I know you love gardening. And how about if I wash and clean your car? Whatever it is. Those are the five. Now, by the way, just so you know, because I know that some of you always go downstairs to Donna. Donna's downstairs teaching preschool right now. And I know a lot of you go down and say, hey, did you hear the message? And some of, it's, somebody here is going to say, did you hear the message about the five love languages? Well, here's the deal you need to know. Donna actually thinks there's six. Um, and I'm only telling you this so that, um, so that you know. So Donna thinks there's a sixth one, uh, the sixth love language. Um, so <laughs> just so you know, if you go downstairs and tell Donna, did you hear about the five love language, Donna will look at you and goes, no, there's six. Please don't correct her. But here's the thing. The thing about this is most of us, we will give and receive love. We will give love based on our own preference. This is the way we act. But the other person may not necessarily receive love the same way. It's not his or her preferred way. This is why in a marriage, a lot of conversations go this way. You never tell me you love me anymore. And the other person says, what do you mean I never tell you I love you? I'm telling you, I kiss you every time I come in the house. I kiss you before I leave. You know, I'm kissing you all the time. And the other person's like, well, but you never tell me you love me. The goal is to love in the way the other person wants to be loved. That's true for all of us. In, not just spouses, it's true for all of us. To love in the way the other person wants to be loved. So, back to the goal. Our goal to build unity is to serve other people. So the question becomes, how do other people want to be served? How do other people want to be loved? Find out. Pay attention. You ever been in a situation? I've seen this happen at Horizon sometimes. You ever been in a situation where there's two people, and one of these people uh, doesn't want to be hugged, not a hugger. It's almost comical, because the other person who is a hugger doesn't get it. 
So they'll, you know, they'll go up and they'll hug, and the other person is standing there like this. And sometimes it's comical. Sometimes you can watch the hugger will try five or six times, and the other person is just standing there like this. And I'm thinking, when are you going to learn to pay attention? When are you going to learn to pay attention? Now, here's the deal. You have to remember what we've talked about. None of us are going to do this on our own. It's impossible. Remember where we started. This is supernatural. Supernatural. For you and for me on our own, we will not do this. We can't on our own, but this is supernatural. God will make the impossible possible. And to convince you of this, I want to tell you very quickly an abridged story. I don't have time for the details. Uh, in Maine, we were in a cabin uh, in, a, in a campground. Nearby us was a single woman in a tent. Now, we had had a couple interactions, but to be abridged for the sake of time, um, the interactions were somewhat painful because this woman is, was the opposite of me in almost every way. If you think about ideology, you could go down a list and she would be on the opposite side from me in every way. But she was alone, camping, and I knew that she was also lonely, and it broke my heart. For reasons I don't have time to go into, it wrecked me to know that this woman was alone and lonely. So I prayed for her a lot. One morning, Don and I were sitting outside our little cabin. We were doing our Bible readings and writing in our devotional, and I was writing my prayer for her that morning, writing my prayer, because her loneliness broke my heart. And so I actually wrote this sentence, God, please give me an opportunity to interact with her. And as I finished writing that sentence, at that moment, no voice, I'm not trying to convince you it was some voice, but at that moment there was this sense, go to the parking lot and she'll be there. That was a supernatural thought, and I knew it was. Donna was sitting next to me without a word, put my Bible down, put my journal down, put my pencil down. I got up and I walked down to the parking lot. The whole way, I'm, I'm thinking, this is silly, but I knew, without a doubt, she would be there. And when I turned the corner, there she was, standing all by herself, alone, in the parking lot. Who does things like that? Only God does. Only God does. Because God passionately, deeply loves human beings, even human beings who are radically different from you. I promise you, God and God alone makes it possible for you to love people. Trust them. So let's finish with a prayer and then a song. God, thank you for your supernatural power enabling us to love people. I pray, God, that in this church, you would enable us to look at what divides us and to say no more, and that you would be pulling us together. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Horizon Church, please go to the website at horizonconnect.org. Have a great week.